this podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. Joanna, first and foremost, thank you for taking time to do this with me. Um, it's it's a privilege because this is a topic that I know very little about, and it's been a few weeks now that I, I knew we were going to do this, and then uh, COVID-19 kind of changed everything, and uh, you told me that you were out of town in South Carolina, and uh, I decided to stick to New York, and I think you're lucky in a sense. You got to get out while you could. And we're doing this on Skype video. It speaks to the moment that we can't do this in person. Um, but I feel very lucky because as a sort of a fellow uh, um, passionate urban planning enthusiast, whatever you want to call it, the sort of love of old things, mostly buildings and, and cities, um, it's always a treat to speak to somebody with this kind of flaw, this very <laughs> severe character flaw, which I find endearing. First and foremost, how has the, how have the last few weeks been for you, away from urban planning, away from Aleppo, away from all that we're going to discuss? How has it been just being sort of in South Carolina, at home, fairly isolated and social distancing? How has it impacted you? Um, honestly, being social dis- social distancing in South Carolina is very different from social distancing in New York hmm. because... as always the rest of America is very different than the city of New York because over there you have space, you have cars, you just get in a car, you go 20 miles. Um, Whereas in New York, if you leave the house, you're immediately at risk of, of coming into contact with the virus in some way. Right. Uh, So actually when I was in South Carolina with my sister, I didn't feel isolated at all because we could still get in the car, go to the store Wait in line. They were yeah, yeah. They had lines outside stores, and the weather is nice, so you can wait outside. Um, go into a store, interact with people. Whereas here, every time my roommates and I go outside, people are stepping away from each other in a narrow sidewalk. Right. If you go into a store, it's a lot more cramped than a store outside of New York. So it speaks a lot, actually, to urban planning, even without intending on it. Oh, that's interesting. Right. So the, the way it's just the way South Carolina, South Carolina is, is that you are going to be distant by default. You're not exactly. going to be. Right. And I was in Charleston. I wasn't in, um, you know, rural South Carolina. It's, right. it's just a city built around a car as opposed to a city built around pedestrians like New York. And so it's just drastically different. Yeah. No, I agree. You know, I didn't think about the urban planning factor. That's actually quite interesting. So in, in a way, I mean, coming back to New York, probably feels very shocking given that i mean it's just it is it's almost like the south carolina lifestyle but in the city that it sort of feels unnatural it it really does and i think i might repeat this several times in this in this talk that we're gonna have 
New York reminds me a lot of Halab, of Aleppo. Mm, mm. It's very crowded. It's big. It's loud. It's dirty. Um, it's bustling. And so coming back to New York for, during the COVID, um, the first thing that struck me was how the city is completely empty. I'm yeah. seeing yeah. streets and not even at this point um, paying much attention because there's no cars. There's nobody in the streets. And, of course, it's making me think this is exactly what Halab must be like right now. Uh, yeah. Because, And then additionally, I'm speaking to my friends and my, and my family there, and they're just too afraid to leave the house because if they get this, there is no hospital with a ventilator right. that can take them. Right. So it's whatever is going on here, for me, kind of feels kind of like home, except home is tenfold amplified. Um, you know, it's really interesting. So, so you've you've been in touch regularly with with yeah, and I mean, if somebody does con con contract the disease, I hope that's not the right word. Con contract, I believe maybe. I think that's all that about is right. the word. Yeah, con. Oh, there you go. By accident, came out. If if someone does contract COVID nineteen in Aleppo, I mean, what what a, what what avenue is there for sort of? Is it just literally? Only option is isolation at home? Um, you hear that, right? That's, that's the soundtrack of COVID-19. You're that's hearing the soundtrack. It a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so unlike New York and Halab, you, well, you can't just call up an ambulance and go to the hospital and... Yeah. If anything, the social divide that COVID-19 is highlighting in New York is also a lot more exasperated and, and more pronounced in Halab. Um, in Halab, there's very few hospitals that have vent. One, there's very few hospitals that are still functional. Right. Two, there's very few that have ventilators. There's a debate on the exact number of ventilators. Ir irrespective uh, of COVID-19, that's separate from that, that just in general, yeah. Just an outcome of... of four years of continuous yeah. war and and um, siege and, and just everything that Aleppo has been through. And so today, more than ever, if you have money in Hadab, you're more likely to get to one of the five or 15 ventilators in a certain place than if you don't. And if you're a refugee or an internally displaced person in this case, then that's even worse. I mean, you've yeah. read the, the headlines. People in IDP camps are just bracing for COVID because they have absolutely no way of... You know... Of, the moment you said money, it just took me back to my younger years in Beirut at the end of the Civil War, and, and we're gonna we're gonna jump deep into that. But that that yeah. that statement, money, and you know, just to get some kind of care, I mean, it's unfortunately so familiar to that part of the world. And you know, when I hear when I hear reactions here about that kind of topic, I always sort of, for for better or worse, I I never sort of put it in its proper pace here. I think back to the real sort of uh, dilemma. Uh, in Beirut, or for that matter, in in Aleppo, and um, you you uh, kind of we met by accident. We have a common friend who who was technically an urban planner, although I don't think he's ever been in that uh, industry per se. I mean, real estate and and management, restaurant management. I think it's it's a curious uh, a curious take on urban planning. You know what it he. One of the it is one of the branches, quote unquote, of urban planning. We had many real estate finance classes. Oh, really? Okay, so he's actually he's a serious urban planner. <laughs> Depends on your definition of the term. He's sure. had to work with the city to get permits. 
Absolutely. You know you're right. Actually, to that point, yes, I'm going to now refer to him as an urban planner. He'll remain nameless for this, uh, for this episode. But he heard me expressing curiosity about other cities, and I, I was referencing Beirut, uh, cities that have kind of emerged from disaster, not natural disaster, man-made disasters. And I was just sort of bouncing ideas off of his like head. I, mean, I was talking about Berlin. That's a sort of that's a common uh, comparison. My mind went also to Warsaw post World War II, and I went away. I wasn't sticking at home, so I was thinking of Europe mostly. World War II. Um, I honestly, it didn't occur to me that there is a city next door to Beirut that is about to undertake that kind of dramatic. Uh, dramatic, whatever you want to call it, re- restoration, reconstruction, maybe the term itself is, is complicated. But of course, Aleppo. And you know, it just didn't, it didn't strike me as the first comparison. And I think that's because all the literature has been mostly on those European examples, with the occasion of maybe uh, Japan is used as an example too, but it's really European heavy. And of mm-hmm. course, there's Aleppo. Of course, there's Aleppo. And the first person he mentioned was you. And I was lucky because you sent me your thesis. And mind you, I don't usually take, when somebody sends me a thesis, I'm like, oh, great, here we go. I have to read. But it was such a pleasure to read your thesis. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And with your permission, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll include the link on, on the de- in the details box because I sound like a five-year-old saying this. It's photo heavy. <laughs> but I enjoy that when it comes to urban planning and restoration. You need to see what you're talking about. Okay. I also was really happy to notice that it wasn't just Beirut. It was not wasn't just Berlin. You include Dresden. You include Kobe and in, in, in Japan. And I was very curious. And it's sort of an in-depth exploration of Aleppo's story. And there are some things that I know just sort of tangentially. I've sort of come across different articles exploring Aleppo, but I don't know any. I'm not intimate with the subject. And I also know that you kind of are following. And I hope I say this with with. You know, I hope I'm not being uh, not overstepping, but you're following your father's passion too in, in in the subject, and that resonates with me. Two different cities, Beirut, Aleppo, but they're facing a very similar fate. Beirut has kind of been uh, it's almost done to a degree, and maybe it's a very controversial one. We can get into that, but Aleppo it's still young. It's just the beginning. Now, with that whole sort of prelude to what we're going to get into. Can I just, I'm just curious, when, when was the last time you were in Aleppo? So the last time I was back home was exactly a year ago. Did you ago. just look at your watch? I looked at the date. Oh, the date. Okay. I thought exactly this could have been. It's my father's watch and, and it's, it's got the date. Well, that's um, okay. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, you know how days have no meaning right now. Of course. Yeah. Um, April 15th, the last time I was in Aleppo was in April of 2019, and had it not been from, for COVID, I would be in Aleppo right now. Um, yeah, over the Easter break. Um, for me, what determines when I go home is weather. Oh, that's um, interesting. Okay, so, yeah. Well, and it, it's going to speak to a lot of what we're going to talk about, because if you go when it's too hot then turning on an AC is going to cost you a yeah, fortune. Sorry. And if you go when it's too cold, then heating the house, especially in our case, because um, our house is gas heated, uh, muzzle heated. Yes. It's very, it's even more expensive than trying to cool the house. Yeah. Um, 
So I always try to pick a middle ground time when it's not too hot and not too cold. And then this year, Ramadan starts in May. Right, and right. So I figured I would get, I wanted to, to go there and take care of some administrative stuff, and I wanted to go in April. So before everything kind of shut down for Ramadan. And that's usually when I try to go every year. Right. I started going back to Aleppo in 2017, in April, yes. hmm. also, um, a few months after the battle for Aleppo ended, which was December 2016. And I've, I've been going back ever since. So how many years were you away from Aleppo before 2017? Um, so in 2011, my parents left Aleppo for the summer, and okay. I, I had left to go back to college. Mm-hmm. We just never went back. So, so at least six years away from Aleppo altogether. Yes. Okay. You know, yes. I, and the reason I'm curious about the uh, the the year range is that my mind always goes back to Beirut, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, you said that you were supposed to be there in uh, this time of the year. Uh, I'm supposed to be in Beirut right now, and obviously, it's it's impossible at the moment. Le- I mean, the airport is closed. Let alone, you know, being there is complicated. But the I always think of the 15-year marker because that's the length of the Lebanese civil war. But then it's I should always put it in context that the civil war, although it dragged on and on and on, the destruction to downtown Beirut was early and it was the first years. And by sort of maybe the six or seven-year mark, downtown Beirut was already sort of damaged and a lot of it was severely damaged. And then just sort of was nature growing and filling up these abandoned buildings. So that sort of six years, it kind of reminds me of Beirut right away, that it was, you know, at least five, maybe six, seven years of intense fighting. And then, of course, the Israeli invasion in 1982. Afterwards, it's just sort of nature growing. So Aleppo kind of has that same length of time in terms of constant damage, and now sort of a a pause, or at least uh, the beginning of what seems to be reconstruction. And um, those six years that you were away, what did it feel like on an emotional level, just sort of being away, watching Aleppo on the news? I mean, did it feel like this was sort of, did did it feel like you were away from home the whole time and it hurt? Or was it sort of like a distant thing that, in a way, many of us looked at those years and kind of just got, unfortunately, numb and used to it? And I mean, how did it? How did you react to those years being away? Um, well, you touched on a, on a lot of very le- relevant things, and I'm sure you're going to relate to this. Um, one, I don't watch news on Aleppo because I don't need to. Yeah. You know, you just yeah. open Facebook, and the news is your feed, or your friends right. text you one day that the bombing is heavier than other days, and you look into it. But in my case, in particular, I avoid the news because it's depressing. Um, being away from Aleppo, it, it, to me, it just felt because it was so sudden how we left, it just felt temporary. It always felt temporary. Yes. Right. Is I'm going to go home. Yeah. I just don't when I'm just going to go home. And the other thing was just a complete and utter inability to, to call any other place home. Um, I'm incredibly, incredibly fortunate because I have a U.S. passport. Otherwise yeah. I would never be here. Um, and that's because my father, when he went to college in the U.S., he spent enough time there. He got a passport. And then many years down the line, I, I 
what I happen to get. I mean, I, I won the genetic lottery. There's truly no understating how much of a privilege it is. Well, I didn't. I've never heard this before. The genetic lottery. That you're an anchor it, baby like me. <laughs> I, I mean, well, no, I, I was born in Syria. Oh, you were born was, in Syria. I see. I see. Okay. Uh, okay. I spent the first 18 years of my life in Halab, but yeah. my father had a passport when I was born, so I I'm a natural born U.S. citizen. Right. Right. Abroad. Yes. Um, and it's just you know it's it it's genetic lottery because it's this golden ticket that allows you to escape war and then come here, and even though I, I've been here for so long, I still can't call this home. You know, I'll never say I'm from America. I'm I'm from Syria. I'm right. Syrian. I happen right. to have a U.S. passport, but I'm a hundred percent Syrian. New York is as close as it's come because it reminds me of home. Um, but just being away to come back to your question about what did it feel like being away was always temporary and it was always hard to get any news from home whatsoever because I was already getting it from my friends but also because then the media is just bombarding you with all Aleppo Oscar nominated slash winning documentaries about the white helmets which after that could not watch anything on Aleppo ever again I just tried watching for Sema two days ago and I could get more than 10 minutes in I'm it's just impossible it's home it's your home it's as if you were watching television and you see a New York building that you know blow up it's it's surreal that's an interesting comparison so it's it's something that you know so well and so you're so familiar with and that you've kind of you deliberately did not sort of want to see the news for that reason that it would just sort of add more to the pain even though you know exactly what's happening but you don't need to be reminded of it every single minute every single hour of the day and i like that you kind of it's very familiar uh waiting Mm -hmm. waiting and hoping maybe next year it would be safe enough and then of course you wait again it's two years three years suddenly you're at six years and you know some people haven't come back altogether so that's yeah the waiting game and i like that you know I spend time in New York. Uh, I've been spending almost half of the year now in New York. The city is, I mean, probably the most important urban planning experiment. I mean, you think about just all these people living in one little, uh, little, little part of the world, but it's such an important part of the world. And I mean, this is where degrees are produced for urban planning. I know that you got your degree here in New York. I mean, many people are obsessed about the story and it doesn't resonate with me. I, I don't. I never find that emotional uh, importance, or even uh, my curiosity is limited. Even though it's a very important city, but New York does doesn't do it for me. And then I think about this little speck on planet Earth, Beirut, and it means everything to me. And I'm always curious about that. What is it? Is it that you were reminded of something that was from a more innocent time in your life, or is it just sort of you're prone to certain cities as opposed to others? And, you know, I ask this in a very broad way because something in the middle, Berlin, I'm more curious about than New York, but that doesn't make any sense. Why would mm-hmm. Berlin resonate more with me than New York? I don't know if any of this resonates with you. Um, the having more emotional connection to the city that you're from does resonate with me, but New York is definitely, I feel, kind of, kind of like coffee. You know, you either <laughs> love it or you hate it. Yeah, um, interesting. <laughs> And Berlin, you haven't been 
tortured by, like you have by New York smells that attack you and people who are aggressive right. with you and maybe system that that can be or speed that can be too much. Mm. So probably Berlin is still a curiosity to you because you haven't. Um, That's interesting. But and you also you have this institutional history in Beirut. I mean, I, you will never feel the same. I think about a different city because you have the history, the family, the 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 tragedy. The your your blood is kind of Beirut. yeah dramatic. I, it might be. I, yeah, I, I really it, it touches me. It. It's a personal yeah. thing. It's not. I mean, it's it makes no sense otherwise. And there are cities that have had sort of more dramatic urban planning stories than, than Beirut, obviously, and yet it resonates more. Yeah, I, I like the way you said it. So it's family story. It's family sort of, uh, it's almost like uh, a duty to a degree to care about a city more than another city. You and know, you're lucky because the city that you're attached to and that your duty is towards is also this incredible melting pot of every culture in the Middle East. Yeah. You know, that's... so fascinating. Sure, absolutely. And I mean, I, I'm not going to trash new york here new york is a melting pot on its own and it's a very important one but yeah i think of the beirut cosmopolitan story as so much more charming but no i I, i'm glad that you uh you finally explained it to me why that city matters a little more than it should you know i I, i'm going to include this in the episode that you wrote two washington post articles that kind of dance around this subject and the first one i think was in 2017 it's a story about you returning to aleppo for the, for the first time after six years. And uh, the second one is sort of a more politics angle post. I'll include both, but I'm more interested in, in, uh, in the first one. D- this, this is almost like, um, it's the journey that I remember, uh, but it's the other way around. It's the journey that I remember trying to get into Lebanon during the civil war. And it's through Syria. Oh. So, I mean, in those years, I, I'm, Families from Tripoli, and getting to Tripoli from Beirut was very difficult, if not impossible, during the war years. And we would fly to Damascus, and then take that very long taxi ride all the way around Lebanon to get to the north. Yeah, exactly. This was maybe even, could have been longer than 12 hours. I mean, it was just a very long, very, very tiresome journey. And then that's to get to the Lebanese border. And then after that, it's sort of, you'd you'd make your way. But when I was reading your article, it reminded me of that. All the sort of, uh, every detail is familiar. And it's a, for me, it's it's familiar and it's, it's, it's bad. Because that's something you don't want repeated. Even the little example of the colors of the flags at each checkpoint. That to me is the 1980s, altogether. And it's, um, I don't know, it made me, it made me almost uh, identify more with the story, because I could see it myself on the Lebanese side. Um, and I, you said something at the end of the article which touched me. It's uh, this 10-year-old boy smoking a cigarette, and that it's just been a few years, and that kid only knows war, only knows chaos and violence. And then you are also adamant in trying to preserve a bit of the city's charm and history and heritage, and I know that you're doing this and your, your father contributed to this and we're going to get into that. But I'm asking you from the, from the beginning, this is a, maybe a bit of a loaded question, but all the sincere efforts, all, all, the, all the positive intention, is there room for hope 
given that it's not just that 10-year-old boy, it's a whole generation. And it's now such a torn part of the world and Aleppo has experienced so much pain. Do you think there's still hope that something as simple as preservation and heritage is is possible in, in the climate we both know in 2020, the way the Middle East is today and the way Syria is? Do, do you think that there's still uh, room for hope? I get it a lot. Why are you focusing on buildings when there's people dying? Um, why is this the time to uh, rebuild heritage when the country is still crumbling? Um, but to that, I say one, well, the city's not waiting for the rest of the world to decide that Mm. it's time to build. People are rebuilding already. And let's come back to that in a minute because the way rebuilding is happening right now is dangerous. Yes. And two, because, um, Hadabis, Aleppians, like my dad called them, are very, very proud of their old city. Um, it's their, not only their shared history, it's the world's shared history. And it's something that people would come from all over the world to see. Yeah. Um, we would have Australian tourists right. come hang out around the Citadel of Aleppo and stay in the courtyard home um, hotels and talk to the children who would run around the, the Citadel. And that gives um, Aleppians tremendous pride. And they still have that pride and they hold on to it. And I think that gives them hope um, that their country is going to come back and their and their lives aren't going to go back to normal. So if you're rebuilding this symbol of hope, then you're giving them back a kind of a reason to keep going and and believe that everything is going to be okay after all of this. That's interesting. So the preservation in itself is a catalyst for positive, that it's not necessarily the other way around, that you should focus more on that 10-year-old kid with the cigarette suffering, that it's actually if you help preserve something that the city is proud of, it may actually usher in positive change long term. Yeah, of course, I'm not saying don't help the kid with the cigarette or kids at all. There are so many amazing NGOs and efforts that are going on right now that help the people, that bring in food, that um, assist refugees. And, of course, there's restrictions around all of that. Um, But the hard part right now is is the reconstruction in a sustainable manner. you actually, it's something you touched in, and I, if I'm not mistaken, it was the second piece in the Washington Post. That was, I mean, it was more on sanctions, but then within that, there was a story about individuals taking action on their own. And I like that you pointed at that that's a risky behavior. Although I, the sanction stuff is, for better or worse, it's the stuff I know. And I know that from different sort of outlets, and that's that's always available. But the the nitty-gritty of individuals deciding to reframe an arc themselves, or sorry, not getting the actual angle correct, and that's a risk. I, I like the way that you're you're approaching the subject. And there's a name that you mentioned in the piece. Uh, his name escapes me now. It was a Thierry, um, oh, I forgot his last name. Thierry Grandin. Yes. Oh, sorry, he's French. There you go. <laughs> that That explains it. Yeah. And I like that, you know, I can see this man kind of wandering around the old souk and people coming up to him eager that their neighborhood or that sort of their street or their alley will will be next on the list. And you got to see this up front. And, and that article was just released in 2019. I think it was last May. So it's just a year. It's, it's, it's a young sort of, uh, 
It's a very recent take on Aleppo. And can you just get into the risk of why why individuals rushing to fix early poses a threat to the sort of the what we were saying earlier, that kind of the pride and the history of Aleppo? Um, okay, so a note on, on Thierry. Thierry Grandin was my father's business partner and extremely close friend. Mm. Um, and together they had an architecture office that used to execute the preservation uh, projects on the old city of Aleppo. Mm. So if you had uh, any sort of foreign investment or even from the Syrian government funds for the reconstruction of, an, of a building or the preservation of the old city of Aleppo, or actually their last big project was redoing all of the sewage and electrical grid of the old city of Aleppo and putting it underground. If right. you ever walk, you won't see lines in the, in the air. It'll, it's all underground. Um, the, the project of the rehabilitation of the old city of Aleppo, the, the generic big one, yes. had just ended. And the old city was truly at its height. Yeah. The citadel perimeter had been almost completely done. Um, the sort of the funding that had been put in place by these international organizations was finished because the project was finished. And we'd gotten to kind of a post-restoration um, era where we were just going to now enjoy all the benefits and the tourists that were that would come in and then raise funds from Syrians to yes. continue preservation work. That was Aleppo in 2010, which is which was is what makes this all the more heartbreaking. Yeah, sure, of course. Um, the war in Aleppo uh, met in the old city of Aleppo. The city of Aleppo was divided between a government-held area and an opposition-held area, right. and where they would meet was in the old city, and the old city was a very practical place for this because the streets are very narrow, so yep. you can't go through them with a car, you can't go through them with a big army, and the buildings are all connected, and so you can just... Yes. The wall by wall, right, right, yeah. The wall, and it's very easy for for troops to go through the old city undetected. So it yes. made it a very good guerrilla warfare location. Unfortunately, yeah. it also became a site of common ex, uh, frequent explosions, and it's it's what caused the destruction of the old city as well. Um, yeah. So a lot of the work that was done up until 2010 was destroyed by the war. Thierry Grandin is a walking history book and encyclopedia about all of the buildings because of the work that he and my father did over right. the course of 20 to 30 years on preserving these buildings, the souk, the bimaristans, the, the citadels. A lot of work was done on yes. the citadel. Right. Um, and so today he's, he's the person, not the only person, but he's the person who represents how reconstruction should be done because... He works on it institutionally. He's getting these big grants from international organizations that are allowed to give him these grants or the Syrian government to rebuild large scale exactly according to what it was before. Oh, so they're going back to the they're going back to where they left off. And, and they then, are. And, yeah. And then there's a big debate about do you go back to exactly how it was? Do you improve it? Do you change it? Yes. Aleppo is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and you have to preserve your heritage, and you have to conserve it, and you have to make sure that if it's destroyed, you're rebuilding it to a certain extent. Otherwise, you you lose your, your status as a World Heritage Site. And the risk yep. right now in Aleppo is not the kind of big institutional work that um, the insti that Thierry is is uh, doing and that is being funded by big donors. The risk is that, as I touch on in my article, Individuals are rebuilding haphazardly because they are worried that if they don't, they're going to lose their property. 
Right, right. And that's because they, there's that sort of, you, you have to restore to prove that it's yours. Um, or, or is that part of it? So, or, yeah. so the old city of Aleppo is made up of mostly um, public-held buildings. Mm, so mm. an example of the souq, um, a lot of the khanat, which is yes. a single stall in the souq, are owned by the Islamic uh, authority in Syria called the Awqaf, which is a ministry. And so if you are a shopkeeper, and and most of the stalls in the souk are rented, they're owned by the Awqaf and they're rented by the shopkeepers, and there's a few here and there that are privately owned Mm -hmm. and are not Mm -hmm. rented. But if you are a shopkeeper who rented your stall and you were conducting your whole business out of your stall and then your stall is completely destroyed then the the Islamic authority of the Al-Qaf, the ministry of the Al-Qaf, gets to void your um, your lease. Right, 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 right. Okay, that makes sense. So, that, so that's that's why people are so pre- prematurely... Yeah. ...rebuild because they just want a structure to be there because if there is a structure there, then their lease holds. Then right. their, their claim on the property holds. That's interesting. So, in, in other words, this is a... Rec- no, this is a... The, the intention is good, but it's causing sort of a, a complication in the restoration process. Exactly. And of course, there are mechanisms that are supposed to regulate how you rebuild. Yeah. You know, this is a post-conflict country. You're supposed to get an approval for exactly how you rebuild or refurbish your stalls. But some people don't, or they do and they don't follow them, or they do and they're not um, upheld. It's it's hard to to control this stuff in this situation, and so you're seeing a lot of buildings that are almost entirely destroyed, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. the second floor is brand yes. new, shiny white stone. So I, I'm going to say this, and uh, I mean this is just a sort of a side note that uh, I'm really happy that you agreed to do this by video because there are things I'm going to attach to the episode. So while we talk, there will be sort of uh, There'll be layers to the conversation that they're not they're not appearing right now, but they'll be there, including uh, snippets of your thesis when appropriate. I'm asking you these questions because in the second article you said something that it resonated not from Beirut, from New York. I didn't know this that the old souk, the old city, is the size of Central Park. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I, you know, I've been to the old city in Aleppo. But because it's just a maze and an endless maze, it doesn't occur to me that it's it's huge when you sort of expand it out. It's it's really too bad because um, our old city, when intact, was basically a little town. Um, Damascus' yes. old city, in comparison, is a lot smaller. There's a few roads that are similar, um, cobblestone, narrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have their, their Umayyad mosque. They have, you know, like remnants of a castle. But really nowhere was there a old city that was intact in Syria, at least um, within a major city that was intact to the level of the old city of Aleppo. We even had sections of the old wall um, that surrounded the old city that were still intact. And we even have neighborhoods that are named after the seven doors to the old city, gates to the old city, Nera, Bab al-Nisreen, you know, there. And you point out in the article that it's even, I mean, the... The old city is not even that old when you think about the city's history, that the walls are relatively new, which I like, yeah. that they're actually, that's that's so old, but it's not that old. You should go even deeper. The oldest, um, I think, physical trace, uh, hmm, let's see, the oldest 
thing in the city of Aleppo dates back to 3000 BC. Right. Wow. That's incredible. That's, that's so there is evidence, at least, of the continuous inhabitation of the city of Aleppo for 5,000 years. Go to the Met and you see these giant stone carvings of a half bird, half human, half lion. Yes. Um, deity. That's, that's from. Like, that's what they found. They found these, and I saw them, these giant stones that were about the height of a human that had these beautiful carvings in them of the deities of back in the day. And they discovered this, I think about a year before the war started and there was funding in place to make it into a museum. And then, and then the conflict hit Aleppo and they had to cover it all up with sandbags and preserve it. It's still there. It's intact. As far as I know, um, it's just another effort derailed and it's physical visible proof of how old the city is absolutely and i hope i got this right that something about a third of the old city has been severely destroyed and two-thirds have been to different degrees i mean some parts are easily restored other parts are very difficult but a lot of the old city is just it's going to be many years before you can actually restore it to at least a version of what it looked like and you know what I always remember that sort of cliche, but it's 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 important to note that it's it was the longest covered market in the world, and that in itself is sort of astounding. It's just it's I mean you think about these things now it's it's uh, I don't know it's our part of the world. It's not you don't have to go to the Met to experience it. You go to Aleppo and it's an outdoor museum. You go to the you go to the to the market. It's not even let's go to the old part of the market no right. let's go to the market yeah and it's a market that's been there for millennia and that's the longest covered market in the world it's 13 kilometers which is what maybe six seven miles um that's incredible you know that number is just because i i do remember walking through and getting lost but yeah it's important to know this this is a lot central mm-hmm. park is huge and that is you know right in the middle in the center of aleppo yeah, you know, to go all the way out to the outer edge of it. Right. You know, thinking on the Lebanese side, I always thought that it's an interesting sort of flipped comparison. Tripoli and Aleppo, sort of same kind of same kind of story. Very old city that has a lot of exposed history, and obviously very old uh, within the neighborhood too that they stand out in their history. And then you have a citadel. You have the Crusader Castle in Tripoli. You have the old souk. You have uh, a lot of the Islamic architecture that's still intact. Go to Beirut. And, I mean, Beirut, if you're at least, if you have some memory of what it looked like in the 1970s, you won't recognize downtown today. So this is a completely flipped version. And then, other way around, Damascus, to me, kind of has that sort of Tripoli sort of preservation. It's survived large degree. Uh, it hasn't been hasn't been damaged nearly to the point of Aleppo goes without saying, and Tripoli also was not heavily damaged during the civil war. You go up north, Aleppo has that Beirut sort of comparison. It's uh, it's destroyed. It needs a lot of work. It'll take a lot of time. In your thesis, uh, you sort of, and I think you're, the majority would say this, that Beirut is not the example to follow. Um, and you kind of get into it, and it's been explored before that Solidaire is a very controversial way of restoring a city. And you rightly pointed out that the onus should be on the municipality. It shouldn't be a privatized restoration process, that this is not something that a company should do. 
it should be sort of a it should be at least a, locals matter and in the case of Beirut the local sort of part of it was very controversial um, I sense that Aleppo the knee-jerk reaction is to follow this solidaire model and make money and did you get that yourself when you were visiting or at least in conversations with people that re- reference the re- reconstruction are they in it for money and do you see that that could be a turn for the worse that Beirut may end up being the model that's used I'm actually really glad you asked about this because I think the Beirut-Aleppo comparison is going to be very important when it comes to Aleppo's reconstruction. So the general attitude among the people that I've spoken to, um, so at least within my ability to assess the general attitude, the general attitude is we want to avoid Beirutization. Yeah, you use that term, Beirutization, right. Yeah. And, and I've, I've heard it. Yeah. And it's an Arabic Yeah. It's it's um, and the, the the aspect of Beirut that I think um, has been scaring people the most is that the downtown of Beirut that used to be you know the old historic beating heart center of it has become this ghost town that nobody can afford. Yeah. Um, yes, it's beautiful, it's shiny, it's got a lot of commerce going on. It might be a big source of revenue for the city, um, but it's no longer. It doesn't have the life that it used to have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is a fear of that happening in Aleppo. I hope that there is a number of factors in Aleppo that will prevent this. Um, first of all, the attitude of the people wanting it to be restored to what it was. The you old city of Aleppo. You get that sort of from your own experiences that the, the overwhelming majority is not in favor of, of Beirut on the local side. I get that from my discussions with people. I get yeah. that from, there's a lot of Facebook groups because Middle East, there's a lot of Facebook groups where a lot of people from the town contribute and give their thoughts on what should be the outcome of the city of Aleppo. There's actually, if you look at these groups, there is less debate than there would be in an academic setting. In an academic setting, people would say, well, should we really rebuild exactly as it was or should we explore? Maybe we'd go back a millennia further. Maybe we should take this opportunity to update it. They're not even having this debate. In in these groups, it's, no, it has to go back to exactly what it was before the war because we want to restore our jewel because everybody felt like it was their their crown jewel. So it's 2010. That's the the paradigm that go back to 10 years ago, not not necessarily 100 years ago. It's, It's a decade. It's yes. Yeah. Uh, and but in fact, I would say there was not a huge difference between the old city of Aleppo 100 years ago right. and 2010. Okay, that's something I wanted to get into. Yeah. So uh, let's let's carry on. I want to go back to that point. Yeah. Um. So yes, going back to Beirut. So one, I think people are are, are very much aware of the danger of becoming like downtown Beirut mm-hmm. and are resistant to it. And two, um. I would hope that the institutions in Aleppo will also prevent it from being um, privatized and and restored by one private entity um, because of the way a lot of the buildings are owned by the Oqaf or yeah. have to have approval by the any restoration or construction project you do in the old city of Aleppo has to be approved by the director general of antiquities and museums in Damascus. It's it's the fact that Aleppo was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site in the 80s, which yes. my father really pioneered for and fought for, um, put in place institutions that I think will protect it today from something so large scale as Solider in Beirut. 
I hope. But I, you know, that's interesting because there's two things here I want to get into. The uh, mm. the first is it's right. It's it's important to note that you're right. Aleppo, for the for the most part, the old city is more or less the way it's been the last hundred years. That's probably with, of course, there have been changes, but by and large, I've seen these photos of Aleppo that I sort of explored on my own looking back. A lot of it is intact. Mm. Beirut? Very different. Very different, almost decade to decade. And it's not that there's a, for me, the most charming part of Beirut disappeared a hundred years ago. And I'm going to include this in the episode. I just want to, since the screen share button is not working on my side, I'm just going to open it up and make sure that you see what I'm talking about here. I have a feeling you're going to show me tramways and trolleys and public transit that does not exist today. I mean, that's, of course, that's part of it. Sure, that's a different sort of tragedy in itself. But, and I'll include this in the episode if this is visible on your side. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a Beirut that disappeared a century ago. And, I mean, for me, if I could wander the streets of old Beirut, which doesn't exist, I would, I would rather go back to that era. And, of course, that doesn't make money. You don't make money off of uh, going back into a, a romantic version of what you wished your city looked like. But that's 100 years ago. I mean, that's, that's very recent history. Maybe Aleppo is lucky to that point that it it already was designated and it didn't change that much up until 2010 so i think there's a there's almost like a strategic advantage for somebody that would want to do what you're doing that it's not going to be uh, sorry yeah go ahead oh i'm sorry um you just made me think of something that i've never voiced that i also thought to entertain um the difference between the old city of Aleppo and the downtown area of Beirut is I think the downtown area of Beirut is so much more appealing to make money in because it's a port and because it's on the water. And if yeah. you put tall buildings and apartments along the water side, then that's going to bring in a lot of money. In Aleppo, I do think there's going to be reconstruction that's going to be looking to make money. Mm. I don't think it's going to be in the old city. Because the old city in and of itself already brought a lot of money into the city in terms of tourism. Right. The, the physical nature of the old city of Aleppo was the appeal of it. It was making money. Because when the foreigners came in, they'd spend $150 a night on a hotel room. Exactly, yes. So its money was in its sort of, uh, in its history. It wasn't its money in sort of its, uh, the way Beirut makes its money. It wasn't, uh, there's nothing really historic about Beirut anyway today. Is there not? I mean, I'm, I, that's, it's, there are some, there is, of course, there's history in Beirut, but nothing like Aleppo. And 100 years ago, there probably would have been more visible history. Beirut has its own citadel, its own castle. Nobody knows where it is. I mean, one wall that's almost been knocked off completely. It's on where the coast used to be. The architectural uh, history of Beirut, a lot of it was bulldozed after the Civil War ended. And that's not just in downtown, that's throughout the city. So even... I mean, going back in time in Beirut is difficult. I think you need someone with you to kind of show you all the time what it once looked like. Aleppo, you don't need that. I mean, the city speaks for itself. Uh, But the second point I wanted to get into was the biggest criticism, I think, about Solidaire, aside from the money angle, is that the souk is gone. The old market of Beirut. And, I mean, there's enough footage available that you can kind of wander it on your own now, on your laptop or your phone. You can kind of see what once stood. Today, it's just an empty shopping mall. But to me, that doesn't... If I'm a private company and I'm trying to make money, 
I don't see a motive at restoring a souk. I see motive in building a shopping mall and making more money, making more rent. So I, for better or worse, it's at least uh, that's the privatization story, that you're going to go that route. And it's a, it's a disgrace to the city's history. But I get it. It should be a municipal endeavor, and there should be local input. And there was something like that in the early 1990s, but it didn't really, it didn't meet the expectation of what you would want in a reconstructed city. That said, I mean, it requires accountability, and it requires something to turn to. And Beirut was emerging after a civil war, and there was very little accountability, very little government. And it was a very chaotic environment. And unfortunately, we lost a lot of our history. In Aleppo, I'm getting the sense from what you're saying that because there is something like an administration that is still there, that it's not, it, it, it is able to still function, and that there is some authority, for better or worse, I'm not asking, not, not interpreting how that authority is used, but that there is a mechanism, and you mentioned sort of Damascus has a say on what Aleppo does, and there's so, almost like a you can prevent that cutthroat uh, money-making enterprise that, that maybe you'll never see something like Solidaire in Aleppo for those reasons, that there is accountability from, from at least an authority that is still there. It, it, there is, so you touched on something very important and that I should highlight. Damascus not only has a say, Damascus decides Syria is a very centralized country. Yeah, yeah. We don't decide our urban um, land use policies on a city level. We don't have a right. city council like you would have in New York mm. that decides what the laws of the old city are. That's decided in Damascus. Um, right. Syria is right. very centralized institutionally in terms of urban. We even we have a ministry of urban. Of uh, I, I don't know the exact term in, in English, but. The, uh, the affairs of the city in Syria are managed by a ministry in Damascus. So Aleppo's um, affairs are dictated in Damascus, for, for in that sense. Urban planning is dictated in Damascus. So any urban planning policy that would uh, that yep. would cover Aleppo would have to be approved by the ministry in Damascus. Mm. When, when Aleppo became a UNESCO World Heritage Site and a landmark protections law had to go into place to protect the old city of Aleppo, Damascus was the one that had to um, approve it. And I think this decentralization, even though it should be relaxed over the time, this, this, uh, uh, sorry, I think the centralization, even though it should be relaxed over time, is what's going to protect the old city short term from giant projects that can um, threaten its existence. I do think hmm. outside the old city of Aleppo, there will probably be yep. these kind of profit-driven big infrastructure projects. I'm already seeing, you know, friends who work on on creating giant shopping centers in certain parts of of the city that but have been destroyed. That's that's but sort of outside of that's not in the old city. Yeah, that, right. That's outside the 350 hectare. Um, uh, radius of the old city. And another thing is the old city is, it's very high profile. It's it's a point of pride for the entire country. And because it is so high profile and because it's been in the news and it, and because the old city had the statute, stature that it had, um, it's actually very hard to do work there. 
So because you have to jump through a lot of hoops, you have to get right. the director of antiquities to agree to it. You have to get this. Uh, there's also a local authority, a directorate of the old city in the city that has to approve it. The Okaf, if it's an Okaf held uh, building, has to also approve it. So I think there's enough institutional barriers that will prevent a large-scale destructive project. That's interesting. So it's really an accident that 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 is already in place. That's so that already kind of, in place. Right, right. Risk is the smaller projects, like I mentioned, that take place by the shopkeeper who's trying to keep his property, yes. by the restaurant owner who wants to maybe add another floor when he rebuilds his his uh, restaurant, you know, by uh, the person who's buying up all this real estate in the old city for cheap because it's rubble right now and who intends yeah. to down the line do something different with it. That is a risk, and that is if it's not um, mitigated going to long-term potentially harm the city by harming several patches everywhere, as opposed to, like, silly, they're raising it and harming it all at once, if you know, if you see my age. It's always important because, you, you know, Beirut, that downtown was not so charming before the war broke out. It had already kind of lost a lot of its a lot of its historic charm and its preservation had been sort of was reckless. And people, I mean, Martyrs Square, the heart of the city, was already in derelict shape before the war broke out. No excuse to reach where it is today, but that other parts of the city are as important, at least to me, when it comes to this, the wider city's story. So I'm sure, yeah, Aleppo has its... I mean, there's endless charm in the city, and I hope that I hope it's not just the old city that survives and the rest of the city is kind of a, a solidaire-like experiment. I hope so as well. I'm talking a lot to you about the old city, which is 350 hectares, but it's only 10% of the surface surface area, 15% right. of the surface area of Aleppo. Yes. And a lot of Aleppo was destroyed. Eastern Aleppo, uh, I would say, which covers about 60 to 75% of the area of Aleppo, has been heavily, severely damaged. And that is where you're going to see, I think, Solidaire-like projects and, and Where it's just simply easier to experiment, unfortunately, in those uh, settings. Yeah. When there's nothing there, it's it's easy yeah. to build a big project. It also sort of ties into the 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 sad tra- the the bigger sort of tragedy here that this is not a short-lived conflict that it has been dragging on and on and on. And I think I mean, 15-year markers is horrible for Lebanon, and the consequences are consequences are still felt. I want to wrap it up with your father's career, and I only sort of I've done some research on my own thankfully there's a Wikipedia page but there's sort of articles that link to it and I kind of just sort of I sort of jumped in and I think a lot of them are they kind of link back to you there's a lot of emotion in the story and I know that beyond your own sort of personal work that I get I get the obvious impression that he was very dedicated to saving the old city or at least preventing dramatic change that would be irreversible and the most of the articles go back to the 1970s. That there's a, a risk of dramatic change on the horizon. These boulevards, these sort of uh, widening corridors that are kind of unfortunately part of the East Berlin story. You see that sort of these wide corridors and sort of rows and rows of fairly hideous architecture, and that he kind of was trying to keep that. It's very, very, very important charm to Aleppo and he succeeded to a point he actually made he well he did it I mean the world heritage is the UNESCO heritage listing is I think his contribution and 
I, I find a lot of charm in that story that one man can kind of do it. Can just from your own sort of your own uh, interactions and your own what you remember of that sort of passion. What drove him to want to save the old city? Why was it important to him? I mean, I I always think these are very personal stories, and there's something inside the person, and I always like to explore that personal component. What was it about? What, what was it inside him that made him really want to preserve its beauty? You're going to like this story. Um, so my father was born in 1940. Uh, oh, wow. he, was, he was also a walking history book. Uh, he was born in 1940 in the old city of Aleppo, just a few blocks from the citadel. Mm. And he, I think until his mid-teens, he grew up walking to his school, which was across the street from the citadel, every day through these winding corridors. So his childhood um, was exploring the old city. He's, no, he, his childhood was the old city. Yeah. He, was, he was born, he, he grew up in a courtyard home yes. with, with you know, the courtyard in the middle and the fountain and the rooms around the yeah. courtyard, windows all facing inwards in the family home um, to a family that's much similar to yours, very political, very uh, civic-oriented, um, just people who loved helping people. Yeah. And and then the other neighborhoods of Aleppo started developing around the old city. Um, right. So he grew up seeing that change outside of the old city. Well, and he, en- he ended up moving to those neighborhoods outside the old city because with time, uh, families who could move out of the old city did. They moved to the newer parts of town that had taller buildings yeah. rather than two-floor homes, windows to the outside, more modern parts of the city. Yes. What was left in the old city after this expansion was middle to low income families. This is actually really important. The people who lived in the old city of Aleppo before 2010 were not rich. They were Darawish. Yeah. They were middle to low income families. Your thesis and, actually gets into that subject, which I found really interesting, that yeah, the, the the older the aristocrats, whatever you want to call them, had already packed up. Had had packed up and left. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so then, my father went to college in the U.S. Mm. and he ended up staying there for a number of years. He married his first wife. He had my sister, um, and he was working in an architectural office and. I think at some point he thought he was going to stay there and he, he would come back to Aleppo to visit his parents and his family. And then I think one year he came back and he realized that there was this big master plan. Um, oh, so he, okay. So it kind of caught him off guard to a degree that he, he does. I mean, that, that was, I forget the name of the commission now. You could, maybe you could remind me. Uh, uh it was a, a mix. There was two big plans, one by André Gouton, of yes. course, the French person, because we were a French uh, mandate. Yes, yes. And a Ben Choya, who was a Japanese planner, plan, uh, which I, the city... I love that these are these are outside influences on a city's history, you know, that it's like, why shop abroad? You don't need this. When, well... <laughs> Planning as a practice was not that developed or respected in yes. general, and, yeah. and it was really the West that, especially after World War II, when they had to rebuild a lot of uh, the cities that were damaged, it was yeah. really the West that pioneered it. And so it it wasn't that they came into the city and told us what to do. The city of Aleppo commissioned these yes, yes. people to come um, do a master plan for them to spark economic growth. At the end of the day, that was their goal. How do we maximize the economic growth of the city of Aleppo? And they had said, well, you know, you have this very dense 
part of the city in the center. Get rid of it. (laughs) Tear these roads, arterial roads through it to allow cars to take goods and services throughout the city more efficiently. Um, Does that encourage economic growth? Potentially, but then you're, you know, you're, you're destroying the fabric of the old city. You're destroying why people would want to be there to begin with. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And and this is, you know, a debate that's always going on in urban planning and urban development. What do you keep? What do you, what do you sacrifice? And for my father, he just couldn't bear the idea of so much destruction happening to the, the neighborhood where he grew up, the 5,000 year old, old city. And he decided to move back and he ended up dedicating the subsequent 30 years of his life more to its preservation. He, he oh, fought. So he moved back for that purpose. Yes. Oh, wow. Wow. He, I'm sure there was family reasons as well, but primarily he, he, he wanted to save his old city and he got on the commission, the mayor's commission and convinced them to, to abandon the plan and talk to the actors who went to UNESCO and and uh, helped classify the city as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. He had, a, he had a big role in all of it. And very importantly, he, he had contacts with the German development agency back then called the GTZ, now it's called the GIZ, mm. um, who were able to get the German government to give Syria a debt forgiveness program mm, for mm. every dollar that they would spend on the old city. So the agreement was that every dollar the Syrian government would give to the reconstruction or preservation of the old city of Aleppo would be $2 written off their debt to the German government because Syria owed a debt to the German government. Wow. And so that agreement, that project that he helped broker um, through his friends who are still good friends of mine who used to live in the old city of Aleppo and just loved researching it. That agreement that he brokered ended up securing about $30 million for the preservation of the old city of Aleppo f- for the subsequent... So he found a financial motive to restore. Yes, and and the, 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 the motive was for the Syrian government is that it would forgive their debt. Yeah. Then it would also funnel the money into the, the preservation of Can the old city. Can I ask you, though, I mean, this is... I mean, I'm curious, how does somebody establish that transnational network alliance to save an old city? How did he do um, that? He, he, he was a very social person. That's a very, um, that's a very diplomatic answer. Thank you. He, he was very social. He's, yeah. he, he always had a smile on his face. He's, he was lighthearted. And then also there's my mother. I mean, by the way, earlier you said that the cities of Aleppo need re- rebuilding. Homs is another city that Absolutely, is forever yeah. to um, touched by this. And my mother is from Homs, so she mm. would have my head if she knew that I talked about Halab without talking about Homs. Um, we'll, 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 we'll do another episode later. We'll another episode <laughs> she, she won't know about this one. <laughs> um, but him and my mother would would often, you know, host these dinners, these parties, talk to people, convince them to to get in on it. So. But that's, yeah, you know, I like I like that he's sort of thinking out of the box because he saw that this could happen and it probably would have happened, and he sort of found a way to at least alleviate the financial concerns, or at least th- think of something that would bring some bring a group on board to the project. I mean, irrespective of the of the damage the last decade, I'm glad your father was able to see a lot of uh, your work come to fruition and he kind of raised you to follow his footsteps and I think he'd be very proud of what you're doing and uh, I 
really enjoy talking to anyone who's passionate about a city's history. So I hope we can do another episode that would alleviate your mom's concerns about hummus. Mm. I honestly, I mean, as somebody who's, I used to wander around Syria recklessly. I used to hitchhike. I would take the very, very, very... Syria. Sorry? Sorry? I can't believe you hitchhiked in Syria. 2004, a friend of mine, uh, we just went. We we made our way from Damascus to Aleppo, but the long way. So we would stop every sort of place possible. The journey started in Malula and then kind of zigzagged our way north. So Hummus was on the trip, Hama. And then we made it to Aleppo. He had to leave, I think, uh, early on. And I stayed almost a month. I just sort of, I, I was hanging out in Aleppo in a hostel in the old city. And, uh, I mean, this is coming from Beirut and from Lebanon and really astonished at how much history was available. And always kind of thinking of that, it's like, why, why is this sort of, why is there so much more care and and attention to detail here as opposed to Beirut? Or did not know back then, this is just a naive sort of wanderer, did not know that I would later talk to the daughter of the man who made that dream possible. So it's very, it's an honor for me to actually kind of connect with someone who's, uh, who made that journey, I think, uh, all the more charming and, uh, and beautiful. And I hope one day, one day, one day to actually go back to Syria and see Aleppo myself. I'm so. really glad you got to see Halab when you did. Um, I'm actually, whenever I meet somebody who's been to Aleppo before the war, I'm very excited that they've, they've seen it kind of at its height. And I, with all my heart, tell them that someday I hope they see it the way it was again. And in my in my heart, I have to believe that that's true, because otherwise, what am I doing? Um, in the last five years of my dad's work, I think that was like when the old city was was really reaching its its um, peak and the the projects were coming to an end. There was excavations happening in the Citadel. The cafes were opening across the street from the Citadel. And yeah. Suddenly it became popular to hang out there. Um, you know, when you're young, you just go have an ergilia shisha in front of the Citadel. And it was really starting to be brimming. Um, and then the war happened and destroyed a lot of it. And the last time I went back to Aleppo with my father, which happened to be about two months before he died, I was pleading him, I was fighting him to move back and set up an office again and work on rebuilding it. And I, I was like, if not you, then who? You know. Well, that answer, I think, uh, you know, I'm glad uh, you've decided, I think, and I sense that you, was very <sighs> clear to you to make that choice. It, it well, he, he gave me a way out. He... <laughs> You're not my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he, didn't, he was he didn't want to do it hmm. um you know to him he said to me i've already seen my dream come true yeah and to him having watched that process happen was enough to not need to go further and he and he gave me a way out so when he died, to me, it was very clear that my father had explicitly said to me that he didn't want to do it, that we shouldn't do it, that it was too early. What if things blow up again and everything gets destroyed again? 
um, you know, go enjoy your life and live it the best you can. Um, and yet it's, it's two year, two and a half years after he died and it's still all I really care about. Absolutely. All I want to do. Um, and then I go home and I see things like this project that Thierry worked on, um, with the help of, of a big international foundation and, and support of the Syrian government. And I'll send you a photo of this. Please do. But yes. A photo of a hundred meter stretch of the souk, a hundred meters out of a 13 kilometer souk, a yeah. hundred meter stretch that was entirely redone and rebuilt uh, for four hundred thousand dollars. This is the the market that you referenced in the piece. The yeah. the um, the uh, the food. Um, I think it was the meat and and. Uh, it it was it was a meat market yes. and because and when you go through the souk. You've you've got sections. First, you have the the jewelry, the gold, the silver, right. the spices, the scarves, yes. and in the end, it's the meat market. Right, right. Um, but I think they had picked this section of the soup because it was somehow less damaged or easier strategically to fix. And he, a few months after I left Aleppo the last time, he sent me this photo of the completed project, and it is incredible. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's yeah. I I look at that and I see the price tag on it, and I think. This can be done, you know. You can you can do this on the whole city. The obstacle is willingness to do it, availability of resources, and you know. The more I look at this photo, the more I want to be somebody who's a facilitator between a donor and somebody who's going to execute a project like this. Unfortunately, right now the souk is still the property of the Syrian government, so I can't take American money and right. use it to rebuild the souk. But there's a lot of private courtyard homes. Yes. Yes. There's a lot of um, mosques and um, mosques is a, a question mark still. Churches um, that can be rebuilt, um, private property that can be then turned around and made into civic centers, trainings. You can train a stonemason so that then they can go get a job rebuilding something somewhere. Right. There's a lot that I can still do within the limits of the sanctions. And hey, who knows? Maybe in a year everything will blow up in my face and I will not have a uh, anything to do with the foundation, but for now, I I'm, owe it to myself to at least try. Right? I, 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 without having met you, just this brief conversation, I get the feeling that there's a creative spirit within you too, and that you will probably find a way forward and make your own dream come true. I'd like to see that dream come true. Um, I'm glad your father lived long enough to see his dream come true, and I think any father would say that if they hesitate, if they saw their their child. Uh, following their footsteps, I think they'd offer them the way out, and I think at the same time, no. hope, hope that they don't. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's uh, everything you just said resonated with me. I mean, we're we're both American citizens. We're both in New York, uh, and we're both thinking about uh, home. And you said it. I mean, Aleppo is your home. Beirut is mine. And we have parents that gave us a way out. American nationality. Politics. So, sorry, sorry. You don't want to go into Lebanese politics. This is my this is my version of Lebanese politics. So whatever you want to call this, yeah. <laughs> but that that sort of we have a way to stay in the states for the rest of our lives without hassle. Yet we're kind of drawn to going back to at least what we consider home, and what both of us, I mean, our respective fathers, uh, spent their lives uh, fighting for. So on that note, I want to thank you for taking this 
afternoon with me, uh, taking an hour and a half of your time with me. All the visuals will be up on the podcast, so you'll you'll see them on your end as well once it comes out. And uh, I hope we can continue this conversation later, and I hope you keep me updated with all that's happening with your NGO and your work on Aleppo. So, of course. thank you, Joanna. Thank you, Ronnie. You have a good day, and maybe someday we'll meet in real life. Once this pandemic passes, I'd love to. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.